0: This is Chewing the Fat. I'm Louisa Chu with Monica Ang and Chewing the Fat is currently on a podcast hiatus, but we'll be checking in with you about once a month with some fun stories and little odds and ends, including our very special Marco Pierre White White Heat 25, his 25th anniversary edition of his legendary biography.
1: Yeah, we had such a nice time talking to him. We were supposed to talk to him for about 15 minutes, but it turned into about an hour and a half. On his dime, he called us from his chateau in Salisbury. And he just talked and talked and talked and made fun of us, and we made mm -hmm. fun of him back. Right. And I really enjoyed talking to him
0: about his reminiscences of making this book. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could not wait to bring it to you. So without further ado, Chef Marco Pier White and Monica and Louisa talking it up from his
1: home in Salisbury.
0: have a new White Heat 25, 25th Anniversary Edition that is coming out in the U.S. in April. What's new in the 25th Anniversary Edition, please? The cover. The cover's new,
1: so it's not the iconic photo of you in your stripy apron.
2: Well, I'm in a stripy apron with a big cleaver.
1: Oh, like the one on the cover of Devil in the Kitchen?
2: So Exactly.
1: Your biceps are so sexy in that one.
2: You're outrageous, you (laughs) two. All right. Okay, so so Marco,
1: why did you decide to put out this 25th anniversary edition?
2: I had no say in it, really. It was the publishers. Hmm. Because it's kept on going and going and going for 25 years. And what's actually new about it is that the first part of the book is the original book. The second part is all the footage, which was never in the first book. And then there's writings by people like Mario Batali, David Chang, Anthony Bourdain. They've all made sort of stories and contributions and things like that for the book. So like two, three thousand words. They're nice. They're kind.
1: I see Gordon Ramsay is writing a bit for uh, the 25th anniversary of White Heat. Are you guys pals again?
2: Look, I've never fallen out with Gordon. Hmm. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, you know, if you, you believe what the media say, you believe what the media say. But, you know, Gordon and I have fallen out. I mean, you know, I flew to New York, you know, a couple of years ago. And I, I, you know, we got the same flight together and we sat there and chatted for seven hours. You know, as we go back a long way, Gordon and I, and again, look at what Gordon's achieved in his life. He's achieved greatness. He's achieved things which most chefs dream of achieving.
1: And every friendship has a rough patch here and there.
2: I don't know if I had a rough patch with Gordon. I just stopped talking to Gordon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so famously, when you had made him cry in your kitchen, which... He made
2: himself cry. I do not have the ability to make someone cry unless I give them a sack of onions to slice.
1: That's very funny.
2: I wasn't trying to be funny. I was just being very honest.
1: <laughs> well, when, when, we, uh, when we were working together in the kitchen and, and you kind of yelled at me a couple of times, I felt like crying, but I didn't.
2: Well, that's because you're strong.
0: That's right. Stronger than Gordon. Sorry well, about you
2: that. You said
0: that, not me. <laughs> Well, if I could just point out to listeners, there's a new 64-page section in the U.S. edition anyway that includes previously unpublished photographs by you, as you were mentioning, the photographer, Bob Carlos Clark, your friend, uh, as well as uh, other details.
1: When did you realize that this book was such a revered tome among chefs and foodies all over the world? I didn't
2: really realize it until about a week ago, two weeks ago. Oh, stop. I'm being serious.
1: You knew that people loved this book. And, and by the way, it's already sold out. It hasn't even come out in the U.S. yet, but it's already sold out in pre-orders. Why do you think people revere this book so
2: much? I can speak for the trade, but not the public. I think the young men and women in the industry can relate to the pictures, relate to the story. I think that's what grabs them. They see that... That there's Marco cleaning down, there's Marco chopping, there's Marco cooking, there's Marco sweating. And so I think they relate to it, and they want to relate to it. They want to buy into it. They want to be part of it. And they feel that that's a stepping stone to them realizing their dream as well. And it's all about realizing your dream. As I say to my little girl, if you have a dream, you have a duty and a responsibility to yourself to make it come true. And that's what we all have. We have a duty and a responsibility to ourselves.
0: Your book itself is really pretty balanced, which I think sometimes people forget. They see the real macho photographs, the images of you, but then also I think people forget it's also a cookbook. I mean, this was not your tell-all book. It's the new edition's got seventy-three recipes, and your recipes are so incredibly, if I dare say it, delicate and refined.
2: Well, about Thirty years old now. I mean, it's- the world has moved on a long way. I mean, it's, it's, you know, what I was doing 30 years ago, I I do, you know, like, by the time I'd realized my dream winning three stars, my food had changed enormously compared to that.
0: But compared to, at the time, the photographs of you, those were the recipes you were making. And I think that that's one of the things that's fascinating about this book and a revelation into your, like, yin-yang balance there. And so... For those recipes now, which are so classic, and again beautiful and delicate, how would the current Marco you redo them, perhaps, or what would you do now to one of those dishes to make it current for you?
2: Well, the, the foundation has always got to be the foundation. You know, if you every, every great chef you will ever speak to, you know, who's trained in that classical. French way, who, you know, who worked in the French school, would turn around and say, the classics are the most important. You've got to have a very classical foundation. And I believe that we live in a world of refinement, not invention. I don't think you can invent. And if people think they can invent, well, let them think that. I mean, it's all been done before. It's like if you look at the tablatelier of oysters, I didn't create shellfish with pasta. I really didn't. I mean, that had been done years before me. Oysters with caviar had been done years before. Serving oysters hot with beaublong had been done years before. What I did was I created a concept. And I placed it inside a shell because I always took into the consideration that eating of the dish really important. Mm-hmm. Because when you're halfway through a dish, it should, it should still look attractive. It shouldn't turn into a mess on the plate.
1: Marco... Some people would say you look super sexy in those pictures. I'm not saying that. But was that Marco happy? Well, you
2: can. You're allowed to.
1: (laughs) But was the Marco in those pictures? We're
0: still recording you two. Okay, come
1: on, guys. But was the Marco in those pictures happy?
2: Of course not. Of course not. Why not? I was a boy with a dream. I was a boy who wanted to create a dream, to make a dream come true. And anybody who has a a real dream, and a real passion, and is driven, they're never happy. Because everything is more important than their happiness.
1: And isn't achieving their dream going to make them happy?
2: Once you've realized your dream, then it's different. Because once you've realized your dream, you're no longer chasing a dream, because you've realized the dream. What I realized when I realized my dream, was that I'd worked many years for something I never wanted. But it was a stepping stone to get me to where I am today.
1: And that is
2: Everything we do in life is a stepping stone. Every Michelin guide that came out was another stepping stone. 1988 was a stepping stone, one star. 1990 was a stepping stone, two stars. 1995 was a stepping stone, three stars. In the 1998 guide, Michelin guide... I realized my dream because I got my three stars with my five red knives and forks. Because what was important about that is because when I was a boy, the great French restaurants of France had three stars and five red knives and forks. It's the ultimate. Five red knives and forks is the equivalent of winning three stars of food but in the front of the house, the service. If you look at the little Michelin guide, you see one to five in little knives and forks in black. But then every so often, someone gets the red ones. Because it meant I'd replicated the, great, the greatest three-star restaurants. The room was as good as the food. That's what was paramount to me. To win three stars before black knives and forks wasn't good enough. And that's why the following year, I took off my apron and I hung it up for the last time. Because I'd realized my dream. I had nothing to prove anymore.
0: Marco, I think that that is one of the details that we're hearing for the very first time ever. The one thing I wanted to ask you, too, about that moment that you said you were done, you had achieved, you were famously reported as saying it's because you felt that the people who were judging you didn't know as much as you did.
2: No, my exact quote was, I was being judged by people who have less knowledge than me. I'd realized my dream. I'd won my three stars. And then I went on to win my five red knives and forks. But you know something? I'd achieved it. I was no longer happy. It was, it was a, such a well-oiled machine. It was so slick. And you know, when you've got so much at risk, you don't change. You keep on repeating the specialities day in, day out, the same specialities day in, day out. Why? because it's well-oiled, it's a well-oiled machine. You've got your three stars, you've got your five red knives and forks. Why? Why risk? But that's boring. Winning three stars is the most exciting journey of any young man's life or any young lady's life. Retaining them is the most boring job on earth.
1: That's what Rene Redzepi said, that yeah, after you've achieved that, you, you're, you're afraid, you're paralyzed, you're afraid to, to innovate more.
2: Well, you're finished. Has he got his three stars yet?
1: Well, I think he got some high accolades. It was in the, the best restaurant in the world thing that San Pellegrino was Well, lists. the one
2: sponsored by San Pellegrino, yeah. yeah, that very delicious salty water. <laughs> Perfect in the kitchen when you're sweating, like bad While well, you crave it. That's why chefs drink salty water, because they crave salt. I didn't and know. you have to crave salt, otherwise your food's salty. Otherwise your palate's messed up. Interesting. That's why you have to drink salty water. So you're putting the salt back into your body.
1: You were seen as one of the first celebrity chefs spawning a whole world and industry of celebrity chefdom, but you don't really like that whole scene.
2: Big fish don't show, do they? What does that mean? Well, big fish don't show.
0: <laughs> well, is, we're is, Midwesterners. We live in landlocked uh, well, lands Well, we've got Lake Michigan, is, Michigan, but
1: what I, is... Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know <laughs> what
2: that... Sardines show. Tilts shoal, small fish shoal. Big mm-hmm. fish don't shoal.
1: Okay, and that means Have
2: you dropped. Have you joined up the dock <laughs> You're so- funny, you two.
0: English well. speakers shoal means basically school, like oh uh, so yeah, get shoal. together. S-H-O-A-L. Okay. Right,
2: S H O A L. Okay,
0: right, swim together. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so that <laughs> means that celebrity chefs shouldn't shoal.
2: Well, I'm not a celebrity chef.
1: I know, but people thought of you as one, like the first one. Well, that's
2: one. their mistake. The reality is, is most celebrities are talentless. They're there for, because of their personality.
1: That's what Louise and I are relying on.
0: <laughs> we're not celebrities.
2: What personality. No, you have great knowledge. That's mm-hmm. why I agreed to give an interview to you both.
1: Oh, you're so sweet.
2: And you're both lovers of food, and you both understand food, and you both can cook food. That's why we're having this conversation, because if you didn't, I would be giving the interview. Thank you, I give you my time. I was very sad about Charlie Trotter, actually.
1: Yeah, what did you think about that?
2: Well, Charlie Trotter did a lot for American cuisine. He did a lot for America, and that's what people must remember.
1: Rather than remembering some of his rougher patches, people should really think about his accomplishments.
2: I think that's what's important in life. You should always look at the good in a person, not the bad. If you look at the bad, you'll never see the good. If you look at the good, you'll understand the bad. And I think what's important about Mr. Trotter, Mr. Charlie Trotter, is that what he did for American cuisine and what he did for young chefs, men and women, and front of the house staff. He created opportunities. He made people dream. That's what Charlie Trotter did, and that's why Charlie should never be forgotten.
1: And Charlie really did put Chicago on the map when it came to food.
2: There you are. And when you think, if you look at some of those great restaurants today in Chicago, those individuals started with Trotter, or they started with someone who started with Trotter.
1: Right, and you're talking about Grant And packets. that's what
2: Trotter did, and that's what people must remember. It's really, really important. How's Grant?
1: He's doing well. He's opening new restaurants, and, you know, he survived cancer.
2: It's it's amazing, but he is without question the most talented, technically talented, chef in Chicago.
0: Marco, wouldn't you say that Grant Ackett's is a chef who has been inventing and not necessarily following the classics?
2: Well, number one, the foundation of his food is classical. Inventing food is one thing. Whether you want to eat that food is another. A lot of chefs, they create food which is to be looked at, not to be eaten. I want to go to restaurants to eat food, not to look at food. I don't want pretty little portions of pretty little food on pretty little plates 26 times. Also, when I sit down at at dinner in a restaurant with, say, three or four or five or six friends, I want to see lots of different food. I want to see lots of different techniques. I want to smell lots of flavors. I want to look at it all. I want to indulge. I want to sit down with five of my friends and we all get a little plate with the same food on it. Where's the conversation? Boring.
1: Right. The waiter shows up too many times and interrupts your meal. I want your, your people
2: meal. to share their food. Let me, give me a little bit of that. Let me taste that. I want to take something off someone's plate. and I want to give them a bit of my food. It's, about sharing. it's you know, and, it's all become so sterile and all so sou- soulless, and it all lacks romance. It's all mechanical. It's conveyor belt cuisine. It's sort of canopies on a plate. But those are all different techniques and different dishes, so if maybe... I want a big, generous something in the middle of the table, and we can all pick up and all indulge. But if you go French, you want something. You want the show. And that's what French is all about. It's all about the three-star show.
0: But, Marco, there's, like, French cassoulet.
2: I love a cassoulet.
0: That's French, too.
2: I love a Dob de bosse with a bourguignon garnish. I love a cockle van, but let's put a big pan in the middle of the table and let's indulge and let's drink and let's break bread. That's what it's all about. And when that's gone, let's bring on the cheese. That's how I like to eat. But that's the only way to eat. It's about sharing. It's about indulging. It's about romance. It's about life. Life's too short to faff around with little portions.
1: Marco, the last time we were all together was about eight years ago, and we were in a Korean <laughs> barbecue. Bar now you want to
2: talk to me again? Genius.
1: <laughs> well, of course we want to talk to you. I just feel bad about your phone bill. Anyway, so the last time we were together, we were at a Korean barbecue on the north side of Chicago, and it was one of those where they bring the hot. I hear
2: hot dogs has closed down. I'm really sad. Yeah, it yeah. did. I liked hot dogs.
0: Louisa took you there. That was great. I I did, and I remember that you gave uh, Doug quite a surprising thumbs up.
2: He was reading the article in Chicago Time Out about me when I stood in front of him to take his (laughs) order and he said, Can I take your order? Was he shocked? Remember, he was reading the actual article in the Time Out magazine. It was extraordinary. That's so funny. Yes,
0: because... To put this in context, you were in town for the release of your book, uh, Devil in the Kitchen.
2: The Devil in the Kitchen, that's right.
0: And I got a chance to take you to Hot Dogs. And um, yes, we. I
2: liked Hot Dogs. I liked him. I was rather sad when I got told that he was closing.
0: Well, you know, he had a philosophy that was
1: very interesting. He decided that he was going to have a restaurant, but he was also going to have a life. And he closed every day at 4 o'clock. Do you think it's possible? for most chefs to have a life and a, a great restaurant?
2: Well, you don't have to be a chef to run a hot dog stall.
1: <laughs> but he had some pretty gourmet hot dogs.
2: Yeah, they were gourmet hot dogs. But you know something? If you're going to serve a dinner service, a lunch service, and make it viable, then you'd have to be there lunch and dinner.
0: Mm-hmm. So we were going to mention about the Korean barbecue uh, expedition that we had because then, Oh, we
2: got back to that for the third well,
0: time <laughs> we, we went out to this Korean barbecue and Monica and I I'd like I, to go
2: back there Yeah,
0: we, were, we would love to have you back. Monica and I were comparing notes like X's before we got a chance to speak with you and she reminded me that you were turning food on the live coal barbecue grill with your bare fingers. And so that made me really think, do you get pleasure out of a bit of pain
2: I don't think of it I just do it it's like that's what you do when you're a chef you just do things you don't think of the pain you don't think of the burning you don't think of the cutting you just do it you know let's not forget there, are, there is no such thing as a shortcut in a kitchen if you're in a proper kitchen and the only cuts which are acceptable are the ones which are on your fingers that's you a- just do your job it's as simple as that just do your job And when the chef's screaming and he wants his food, you can't faff around with a pair of tongs. (laughs) And you know something? It's about being in touch with what you're working with. That's key. That's important. You have to feel it.
1: And sometimes literally get your hands on it.
2: And I think maybe what happens is that little part of your brain which sort of registers pain, you don't think of it because the job is the most important. It's like the man who walks across hot coals. He said, "Oh, that was hot." Just walks across them. It's no different, is it? If it burned him, he wouldn't do it again, would he? But you just sort of block off that part of your brain which registers pain. So,
0: Marco, are you happy now?
2: I'm over the moon. I'm really happy talking to you two. <laughs> it's genius. Well, it's my phone bill. Yeah, it is. So, you're so clever, you two.
1: We kept pretending <laughs> so we, we couldn't reach
2: through, you. We can't get through, get them to call us. Genius. I love it.
1: It's true. I called a million times. But Louisa?
0: This is public radio. Um, I ask if you're happy, and then, because you've said that do you... I sound
2: happy? You do. That's the question you should be asking yourself. Does he sound happy? Does he sound contented? Does he sound at one with himself? And are you? Of course. I'm over the moon.
0: Well, I asked that because you'd said at the time when you were when you when you gave up restaurant life that you were not happy because you were done. You were done with that. And because you were seeking other growth. But for a and you, you kinda of made it sound like, oh yeah, you were done chasing those dreams. But boy, for a guy who kinda of like retired, uh You stay pretty you, busy. Yeah. You're really busy. And you always have new goals and new projects and new
2: Fires I'm no fight. different to anybody else. I go to work. I have to earn a living. And even if I didn't have to go to earn a living, I would still go to work. It's in my nature.
1: So you wouldn't be happy to... I like
2: doing things. It's like I've worked all day today.
1: What'd you do today?
2: I'm writing my new book.
1: Oh, yeah? Please tell us about it. No. Why?
2: Because we're here to talk about white heat. Okay.
1: All right. So you have, you have lots of projects. You have restaurants. You have expansions. You're still uh, a spokesman for Nor.
2: Of course. I love Nor.
1: Tell us about Nor. What do you love about Nor?
2: Is, Noor is a necessity within the domestic kitchen because most people don't have a proper-sized kitchen or proper-sized pans or a proper stove to make a proper stock. So, therefore, it's a necessity. It also has its place in the professional kitchen. I used to use the chicken bouillon instead of salt, the seasoning sauces.
1: I like to but, drop it in with a little bit of steamed broccoli or cauliflower, a little bit of water in the blender. Delicious yes. soup.
2: Well, it, wor- it works better than salt. It's more forgiving than salt. If you make a say, for example, you make a tomato sauce,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you separate it into two different pans, you season one with salt and you season one with your chicken bouillon, which tastes better. Probably it's about being bouillon. honest. Well, Which is depends. more giving You over something with salt, it's in the bin. You overseason something with a bit of gnaw, then you can, you can dilute it down a bit. It's as simple as that.
0: But Marco, you are a man of the world. You have heard the concerns and the criticisms about using products like gnaw or other additives. I mean, you told me that it's not hard to cut up a chicken and then nape it and do a lot of pretty refined preparation. I just
2: said I used it in sauces and stews. I didn't say I used it for seasoning chicken, but I do sometimes use it. I sometimes make a paste with it and add herbs to it and spices to it and spread it on something. It's how you use something. That's what you must remember. It's how you use it.
1: What are your future projects coming up?
2: I'm building a hotel in Singapore. When I say a hotel, it's a small hotel. It's 22 bedrooms. It'll be very beautiful and very colonial and very English. A boutique I'm building hotel. a hotel in Bath, which is 42 bedrooms. I just put in a bid for another hotel in Oxfordshire for 50 bedrooms. Uh, I'm going back out in March to film Masterchef to Australia. I'm working with Ridley Scott to make the movie The Devil in the Kitchen.
1: Wow. Are you going to have a part in it or are you a consultant?
2: Are you crazy? I'm a cook.
1: (laughs) But it's not like you're a stranger to TV. I'm not Michael
2: Fassbender.
1: Who's playing you, can you say? Or is that top
2: secret? Well, Michael Fassbender's first option.
1: Well, we appreciate all the insider information.
2: As I say it's really nice to to you two girls. You're very charming. Uh,
1: equal- <laughs> Only for you, Marco. On that note, Marco Pierre White, thank you so much for talking to us today. We thank you very it.
2: much for having me on your show.
1: And we can't wait to see the proper version of the 25th anniversary of White Heat. I
2: can't wait for you to see it.
1: Thanks so much.
2: But it was a pleasure. I suppose this was the premiere of why change America. How clever are you two, young ladies?
1: We sure are.
2: <laughs> super clever. Super smart. Thank you for your time, Monica. Louisa, thank you for your time. And I can't wait to go to a Korean barbecue. I'm sad I won't be going to Hot Dogs.
0: Maybe we can get Hot Dogs to come out of retirement just for you. And we really would love to visit you in Salisbury sometime.
2: Well, whenever you're in England, in sunny Salisbury, Wiltshire, come and join me. I'll put the kettle on.
1: So, Louisa, that was our talk with Marco Pierre White, and uh, I can't wait to go visit him in Salisbury. Maybe go deer stalking.
0: And remember, you all heard it. He said, "Come on over." So Marco, so he can't kick us out when we show up, exactly. like with our sleeping bag. If you're listening, if we show up at your door and we're knocking, we're gonna see, we're gonna look through all the leaded glass windows and look for him in that refrigerator, vintage French refrigerator room. We're 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 gonna we're gonna camp out outside until he let us in.
1: Indeed, and we'll be checking in with you every few weeks. Thanks, Thanks for listener.